morning, everyone, and happy Friday. Welcome to, back to the podcast with the Dysautonomia Project. Um, I'm Riley, and I am sitting next to Jillian. Hello, I'm Jillian. Um, I'm so excited for today's podcast, so I guess we'll just jump right in. Today, we're going to chat a little bit about the best diet for patients with POTS. And because I made my New Year's resolution to make better choices, this topic actually kind of relates to me too, so I'm excited. All right, well, let's get started and kick off the podcast the right way with our usual choice of coffee. Everyone grab your cup of coffee, beverage, and raise your glass. Mugs up. Mugs up. All right, and if you um, are listening today, make sure you post a photo on Instagram or Twitter and hashtag mugs up and tag at the Dysautonomia Project. So we have read and heard a million times that certain dietary recommendations for POTS patients can help their symptoms tremendously. What kind of changes are we talking about? Like what really works? So of course we know the basics. So increased fluid intake and increased salt intake. There are, however, many other dietary recommendations that you should try if you can. So let's jump into the four fast facts this time about dietary changes in POTS patients. And then we'll expand a little bit on each one. So the first fast fact, one of the biggest problems in POTS is the inability to tolerate standing due to blood pressure dropping and heart rate increasing. Part of the typical initial POTS treatment strategy is increasing water intake. Number two, there are dietary ways to increase salt intake. And if salt can't be increased adequately through diet, then salt tablets may be used if advised by a doctor. Number three, patients are generally advised to eat smaller meals more often than larger meals and also limit the carbs in their diet. And lastly, um, something that I had no idea about, um, energy drinks like Red Bull have been implicated in the development of POTS in young people. In one published report, avoidance of the energy drink actually resulted in the complete treatment of POTS in this patient. It's so crazy. This goes to show that we need to be careful about what we're putting inside our bodies. Of course, we can't base all the symptoms on what we eat and say, oh, that's why I have POTS, but it is a good idea to follow some guidelines and see if certain dietary restrictions help you. Remember that each POTS patient has a different case. So we have covered increased salt and fluid intake, smaller meals, less carbs, and absolutely no energy drinks. Here are a few more. Caffeine is very controversial with POTS patients. There is no good evidence that this is helpful, but there is also no strong evidence that it's harmful. We've heard that it does indeed help some patients, but we do know for a fact that those of you with hyperadrenergic POTS should definitely avoid caffeine and over-the-counter caffeine supplements. My suggestion to you on this is to know your body. If it helps you, then go for it. If not, maybe something you should consider cutting out of your diet. Next, you should limit or avoid your alcohol intake. POTS patients are typically advised to stop drinking alcohol or limit how much you drink because it's been related to passing out spells, even in healthy young adults. As we all know, alcohol is associated with the impairment of the body's usual response to regulating blood pressure when standing. This is because alcohol prevents blood vessels tightening like they normally would do and stops the blood flow return to the heart. The list can go on and on about how alcohol affects your body, and honestly, each and everything listed during my research for this was negative for POTS patients. In patients that already have GI problems, celiac disease and gluten sensitivity may be considered. It may be worthwhile to discuss a blood test with your doctor and try gluten-free diet to see if symptoms improve. The same goes for lactose intolerant. Try avoiding products that contain lactose. This could improve some symptoms. Now for the why. Why should you, if you're a patient, increase salt and fluid intake and eat smaller meals and lower carbs? While the amount of salt in the body is directly related to the amount of circulating volume. So essentially, sodium equals more blood volume in the body. So how much should you increase your intake? About 2 to 4 grams a day. 
Fluid intake does not have to be water to be effective in patients. As long as hydration is maintained, it doesn't matter what the fluid is. For example, according to myheart.net, soup was even shown to help in the improvement of blood pressure response and in symptoms. So how much should you intake? Greater than two liters a day and maintain clear urine. Before we welcome our special guest, I want to dive into large versus smaller meals. Digestion requires increased blood flow, and in POTS patients, there is already a problem with blood pooling in the lower body. When you eat smaller meals, digestion doesn't require as much blood. Also remember that the lower the carb intake, the higher the blood pressure. All right, everyone, now that we've given you a few suggestions, let's talk to Emily, a POTS patient, and get her perspective on a few things. Welcome, Emily. What happened at the beginning of your struggle with dysautonomia? Um, So mine is actually pretty a long timeline of events because really I've had symptoms my entire life and looking back now I can actually easily identify them and can see that I've been dealing with dysautonomia for basically my whole life. Um, As a child and into my teens I struggled a lot with gastrointestinal symptoms as well as fainting. I had a lot of subluxations and dislocations in sports, which I now know is due to having Ehlers-Danlos, but I didn't know that back then. I was just a second grader saying, oh my gosh, my joints are hurting. Like, why are my, why am I hurting? Um, we didn't really know. Um, but I think in 2011, when I kind of really realized something was going on and, and I had, um, gotten the flu, I was 23. I had a really high fever that lasted six weeks or a little more. And it was after that that I started having really bad vertigo when I would stand up. So I would be standing up trying to walk to the bathroom and I would just start walking into walls and I actually ended up passing out. Um, and I was feeling that way for a while. Um, so I was at the pharmacy one day and I was I saw one of those blood pressure machines and I was like, oh, I wonder if I my blood pressure is weird because I don't know, I wasn't feeling good and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and the reading was 80 over 40. So, and my heart rate or my blood pressure was really low and my heart rate was pretty high. I ended up in the emergency room and then they referred me to a cardiologist. Um, and he didn't really find too much going on other than tachycardia. And at that time it was presented to me, like you're overworking, you're doing too many activities, you're too stressed because, you know, I was working full time. I, um, was rollerblading, running, going to the gym. Uh, so my symptoms after a little bit after that, they started to get a little bit better. I still had gastro symptoms, but I was doing better and I started having uh, randomly really bad tachycardia upon standing again. And so I'd be driving in my car because this is even when I was sitting up, I'd be driving in my car and I, my heart rate would just get really high. And I had realized when I would lay down, it would actually get better. Um, and so I would, just pull over on the side of the road or into a parking lot and I would wait until it passed. I would lay my seat back and wait until it passed and then go on about my day and that started happening a lot more. Um, we, I was working in retail so it was Black Friday and I ended up passing out and hitting my head on cement so I had a concussion. Oh, wow. We went to the doctor and she's just like, honestly you're just you're anxious this is all in your head maybe you're working too much like just put it on me and said you know you're just an anxious person and this is what's wrong with you um, and I didn't think twice really to question that like I knew something was wrong but I really just thought okay maybe I am just anxious because no one could really figure out aside from the tachycardia what was going on um, so in 2014 I had an annual doctor's appointment I had a couple of levels from uh, 
blood samples or blood tests. Yeah, a couple of blood tests that came back abnormal and they called me and they're like, okay, well, we need to schedule you for an MRI because your blood work is showing that you might have a brain tumor. And I was, um, okay, sure. So we had the MRI and it came back that I have a a tumor on my pituitary gland. Um, So I was diagnosed with a prolactinoma and that is just a benign tumor, um, but it's on your pituitary gland. So it compromises a lot like with your thyroid and your adrenals and stuff. And I was put on medication that was used to shrink that. And it was after the medication and all of that that my health really started a steady decline because it was in July of 2014 and and I just got worse and worse and worse. Um, I was, I went from like a lot of nausea, daily vomiting, severe pain all over my body. Um, I I weighed 127 pounds when I first got diagnosed with that and then ended up dropping down to 90 pounds. Oh my gosh. I was passing out all the time. I couldn't make it through any of my shifts at work. I would be an hour into my shifts and I would immediately have to lay my head down and I just couldn't lift my head up. Um, and it was in October actually of 2015 that I ended up bedridden. Um, and I wasn't able to get up. I was passing out. I couldn't eat anything for two weeks. I was really sick and I was in and out of the hospital during that time. Um, and they finally admitted me because my heart rate was in the 200s and that really scared them and it scared me because mm-hmm. it was in the middle of the night. I woke up and my heart rate was that high. Um, so they admitted me and most of the tests came back normal, nothing really showing too much. Um, and it was at that point that a doctor, an electrophysiologist said, you know, I think this could just just be autonomic dysfunction and, and really the only thing we can do for you is tell you to eat more salt and to drink more fluids and you'll be fine. Um, Obviously, I didn't feel fine. They sent me home and I still wasn't able to eat. I still was having really bad tachycardia. I I was really, really sick. And so we went into a cardiologist and the cardiologist is like, well, I'm gonna send you to an endocrinologist because maybe they can help you. I go to the endocrinologist and he's like, no, go back to the cardiologist. This is my problem. And so they tell me, um, he's like, yeah, I mean, there, something's not right or something's not normal. And uh, I mean, it's not really a big deal. It's just, it just is. And I, you know, I couldn't function. It, it was a big deal. Right. I, I had no quality of life at all. Um, and we're like, okay, I can't eat. I'm fainting. My heart rate is in the 180s. And um, it was, it was a really, a really low moment. And we were kind of like at an impasse. There was just nothing that we knew to do. I was around this stage though, I had a friend who actually had POTS and prior to all of this happening, she always said, you know, I feel like you have this and I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. Um, but it was around that time, I think I had heard Christina Tornant's story and um, I reached out to her mother, Tava Wilson, and Tava ended up getting me in touch with Lisa Rooker and doctors that were able to see me and I saw a doctor that was able within 10 minutes of my first appointment tell me that yes this is POTS wow. and so it was confirmed um, and I remember just crying because someone listened to me someone wasn't blaming me someone wasn't telling me I was anxious they were like no this is a legitimate problem you have dysautonomia and and we're gonna try to help you figure this out Wow that's crazy Tava and Lisa are just so amazing I'm so happy that um, I know them and I'm so happy for you and all the other patients that they've helped, it's just 
incredible despite all the things that they've dealt with in the past or are dealing with it's really amazing of them they they I mean they took me in as family you know like they they have been essential in my journey and I'm I'm also very thankful for both of them so uh, I guess kind of jumping to the present um, we've seen that in pediatric patients and you said that you have this like most of your life but they tend to grow out of their symptoms um, do you see any of your symptoms getting better or are they just kind of stagnant um, for me it's kind of it's kind of if well it's hard to explain I, I am not one of the I have not gotten better um, actually my I've gotten worse mm-hmm. um, and I think it's really it's a hard place to be in um, because I want to get better and I'm doing everything I know to get better but it's been a progressive downhill really for me um, it's like I'm stable right now but I don't feel good so there's never a second in the day that I'm not having symptoms and having to work through you know passing out which I do several times a week or um, a lot of digestive issues and it's been hard to figure out a treatment plan that was really, that has worked for me beyond, you know, I do take a heart medication that has helped the tachycardia some, mm-hmm. but aside from that, you know, I'm still, I'm still really struggling daily. So you said that you have digestive issues. What are some things that you do daily to manage those? Um, most, the most important thing and the most effective thing that I have found that has really alleviated some of those symptoms has been cutting out processed food, um, but also eating very small meals a day. So a normal person can just sit down and eat a meal, whereas a lot of us with digestive issues and dysautonomia, we sit down and try to eat a normal meal and we get really, really sick. So I've cut back on processed food, but I've also, I just kind of snack throughout the day. That's the way I I eat I just have a few bites here and there Mm -hmm. and just all kind of fully throughout the day and that's really helped me in terms of um, in terms of just really making a completely big difference in my life and I think each person is so different so what might work for me might not work for others but I think it's important to really just identify the foods that you can eat that cause you little to no symptoms and really stick to that and for me you know that's cooked carrots Mm-hmm. Um, mostly gluten-free, not processed food, and easy-to-digest food. I have a lot of smoothies. Um, I've found those to be really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, so throughout your journey with dysautonomia, have you participated in any like medical programs, like at Mayo Clinic or anything like that? I haven't. Um, I've never participated in any kind of medical programs, but... I do make sure to exercise every day that I am able. Mm-hmm. For me, that's um, recumbent biking. Um, anywhere from 15 to 15 minutes, whatever my body will allow me to do. Um, I obviously do that reclined, and that's... Uh, I think it's just important to like try to stay as healthy as you can when you're sick. And so biking every day on the recumbent bike, and then um, doing light yoga light stretches, anything laying down or just uh, sitting up that doesn't cause me too many symptoms. I do that, but not an actual medical program. It's just a routine for me to just do the best I can to stay as healthy as I can. So is there anybody that helps you stay hopeful? I know like Lisa and Tava are just amazing. Um, Just 
I guess, how do you stay hopeful? Um, well, yeah, as you mentioned, Lisa and Tava, definitely, they've been so, they just are there for me and continues to remind me that I'm not alone. But mm-hmm. um, specifically also, the Dysautonomia Project, really, um, for all the work that you guys do, it gives me hope because I know that one day all doctors will know dysautonomia and they will know how to recognize the signs and symptoms mm-hmm. that will lead to earlier diagnosis times which of course would lead to less suffering for patients and um, just knowing that like potentially one day I can go to the if I have to go to the emergency room they'll be like oh I, I know this I know what this is and um, so that definitely gives me hope um, I also I see an amazing therapist and I've been seeing her for the past five years so she's been really really helpful on my journey and she's seen me through this entire journey and she always challenges me to like see the light and the hope in any road that I am on and I think that um, makes you know with friends roommates and just people who are genuinely my support system and care they help me to look forward and to stay strong because it can be scary so I, I definitely lean on them a lot for support Is there anything that you would like to say to everyone listening today, whether they be patients or not, um, but to give them a message of hope and to keep moving forward? Yeah. um, Stay strong. uh, Keep fighting. And know, please know um, that you're not alone. I feel like this illness, and it is, can be um, incredibly, incredibly isolating. Mm -hmm. You feel like no one around you understands you you feel like no one can relate to you you feel like you're losing friends and you feel like you're a burden on your family members but please just know that you're not a burden on your friends and family you're not alone this is a fight that many are fighting with us Um, the dysautonomia project is fighting with us and for us it's a very hard and a very scary road I mean it's really terrifying and at times it might seem hopeless but I think it's just important to remember that it's not and that there's so many of us and we're all in this together. And actually, um, one quote that I have written down that I look at whenever I'm having a hard time is from Claire Wineland, and she's a cystic fibrosis patient, but she speaks a lot about chronic illness and living life with a chronic illness. And the quote is, um, you can be in pain and still see beauty, and that is what makes life incredible. Mm. I feel like that's like a very important message of hope Definitely. Um, Well, thank you. I actually have one more question. So I know you saw on Facebook that Beyonce's sister Solange was recently diagnosed with an autonomic disorder. Um, Do you think that that will raise more awareness or maybe she can become a voice for people with autonomic dysfunction? What are your thoughts on that? Well, when I first heard that news, I I cried um, for several reasons. You know, one being I would never wish autonomic disorders on anybody dysautonomia is a really rough it's complex so it's it's scary so I I, my heart hurt for her but at the same time the fact that she spoke out Mm -hmm. and the fact that she has such a strong a big platform and a strong voice um, and she's connected to people who are now you know her sister's Beyonce so Mm -hmm. now she's gonna know this I think it's I think my hope is that it's going to create a lot of awareness and going to open the eyes that people can look okay, they can look perfectly fine, but still be fighting something really disabling internally. And um, I really hope that she's able to be a voice for so many who maybe just can't speak out or they're too sick to speak out. And 
by putting it on Instagram already, she's already raised so much awareness and people are probably, you know, like wondering what is that and hopefully looking it up. But I do hope that, um, this will be something she can come forward and actually like maybe do interviews on or just Mm -hmm. speak out the more that she knows about it. Cause I don't know how much she knows. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, like as someone who's not a patient and I just kind of work in this field, but fighting for all of the dysautonomia patients and trying to spread awareness and education, um, hearing that news that morning gave me hope and seeing okay millions of people just read that she has an autonomic dysfunction millions of people are hopefully looking into that and reading about it so that gave me hope too and I really hope that it gave patients all over even more hope than hopefully that they already had what I, I found super interesting too and like another part of the reason why it gave me hope was several of my friends on Facebook they shared the article and tagged me and said, you know, oh, my friend, my friend struggles with this. And I've seen this firsthand, Mm. what this can do. And the fact that they alone were like, oh, hey, this is what my friend has and making that connection and sharing it with their friends and saying, hey, this is a, this is a problem. This is big. This is complex. And this is what it can do. It definitely gave me hope. And I'm, I wish all, obviously all the best to her. And I hope that she has a good team of doctors, but I also hope that she can, you know, be a part of that voice that we really, really need and that platform that we need to just really bring the awareness to this to a point where, you know, my phone, when I put dysautonomia, it tells me it's not spelled, it's like not a word. So, right. Yeah. You know, having it more recognizable. Well, I completely agree. And thank you for answering that like totally random question. But I wanted to get a patient's point of view um on that too thank you so much like thank you for allowing me to do this this is really awesome all right thank you everyone for listening we hope you learned a lot today remember to like us on facebook and follow us on instagram and twitter post your hashtag mugs up photo and tag at the dysautonomia project we only have about one photo now so we're looking forward to seeing many more And if you'd like to make a donation to the Dysautonomia Project or purchase our book co-authored by our founder, Kelly Freeman, visit our website, www.thedysautonomiaproject.org. Again, thank you so much for listening. We'll chat with you again next week.